Welcome to Herbal Hour, the podcast for those inspired by nature. I'm your host, Dr. Bogdan, and I'm a licensed naturopath and traditional herbalist practicing in the lovely state of Oregon, bringing you organic discussions with experts in natural medicine, alternative therapies, and holistic mental health. Hippocrates taught us that the doctor treats, but it is nature that heals. So take a deep breath and get comfortable. We hope you enjoy our conversations over a cup of the finest herbal tea, because in nature, it's always Herbal Hour. Welcome to the Herbal Hour podcast. We have return guest, Dr. Angela Hardin. And today we will talk about uh, doing no harm as a physician, uh, medical traumas, and many other things within the field of uh, mental health that we, we deal with pretty regularly with, with our patients and in our discussions. So welcome, uh, welcome back. How are you doing, Angela? Good, good to be here and nice to see your face again. Yeah, it's been, it's definitely been a minute. Uh, so for our listeners, can you give an explanation kind of uh, who you are, what kind of work you're doing uh, to give people an idea uh, of? Sure. Um, so I am finishing my third and final year of residency at the National University of Natural Medicine, NUNM in Portland, Oregon. And that's where I graduated from naturopathic school. And um, I've just sort of immersed myself in the, in the teaching clinic there. And it is a primary care clinic. And over the years, I've seen um, my practice uh, sort of hone in more toward um, a mental health focus, but certainly... Mm-hmm. It seems, especially in the pandemic, like every patient that I see is needing some sort of support in this arena. So even if they weren't struggling, um, you know, with mental health before the last couple of years, it's really coming out now. Um, and so interestingly, I when I was a student uh, going through clinical rotations, I, I didn't really want to see mental health conditions. In fact, I thought that it was too difficult to deal with people's emotions and hold space for that. And like, well, what was I going to say? What, what did I have to offer? Uh, and it just felt too personal and too uh, vulnerable, I guess. And I didn't know how to respond. Like seeing that kind of emotion come out from someone else made me feel uncomfortable and I feel like as, when I look back on that now, I do recognize a little bit of just sort of growth in myself that needed to happen as far as uh, not suppressing emotions, letting those things, putting a label to those things and, and letting yourself be heard so that you can um, let go of some of that burden. Because mm. I feel like just, just sharing an experience, a personal experience with somebody else who's holding space um, is part of the healing process. So it doesn't, there doesn't need to be some fancy treatment that comes in. It's sometimes just holding space and validating that person's experience. And so when I was a student, I was like, I don't want anything to do with this. You know, it's too heavy. It's too much. It means that I have to sort of dig down deep in myself and recognize the part of myself, almost like a mirror of what that patient is experiencing and be, because I have a lot of empathy, but it can be very uncomfortable to feel the things that somebody else is feeling. Right. So I, I think that that was part of it as well. So I was like, I don't want anything to do with this. 
And that was just what I kept attracting. Like every patient, even though I thought they were coming in for something else, it ended up being a conversation about depression, anxiety, insomnia, obsessive thoughts, suicidal thoughts, you know, mania, all of these things kept coming up to me. And I finally stopped pushing back against it. And I just opened to it and said, um, this is something for me to just a, a life lesson potentially, or something in me that is attracting these patients. And what is that? And so the more I just let go of, you know, that resistance, the more comfortable and actually the more enjoyment I got out of having those kinds of visits and just holding space and giving validation. And that's why I wanted to talk today about medical trauma, which is sort of this term I'm using to refer to a lot of different um, areas of, you know, the medical visit that are very challenging from a patient's perspective. Mm. And in mental health, particularly that, yeah. uh, that trauma is, uh, most pronounced. One thing, uh, I noticed, uh, very similar to you when I, uh, when I was first going through school and I was telling people that, you know, my main focus will be around, uh, working with mental health. That's something that always interested me since I was young. I started reading Carl Jung about dream interpretation and things. And I was just like, what is this? It was like a completely different view of uh, mental health where it wasn't uh, negativity focused, which is kind of like the stigma around it, like these diseases and these bad things and these states of minds. Whereas uh, that uh, like Jungian way of looking at it was more like holistic. It was about the person's story. It was about uh, mental health really being uh, connecting with uh, the existential issues that affect every human. And uh, maybe that, I would say, is, is part of the reason there's a stigma against it. Because when you sit down with somebody uh, who's you know, suffering from pretty bad anxiety or depression, and the more you, you uh, talk with them, you find out their story, you start realizing you know, this is a person just like me. This is a person that I could be if my circumstance was different. And, uh, and a lot of, a lot of people that suffer from mental health issues, I've noticed, particularly, uh, patients that are more inclined towards the holistic view. They're some of the most like remarkable, creative, thoughtful, intelligent people that I've ever met. Um, and it's, the, it's a shame that there's such a, like a stigma around it. Cause at some level it's like they're against their own selves. Uh, so I wanted to ask a, a question. What, what do you think about that kind of general uh, reaction that, that people have uh, particularly like uh, health practitioners who aren't interested in mental health when you tell them you're doing uh, mental health where it's, I, I've experienced things like where they're like, oh, you know, like, wow, that's, oh, you know, like that kind of, you know, the general thing, you can just fill in the words. It's like this kind of like, oh, I would never, I would never work in that. It's like, they have this uh, idea that, you know, uh, you know, all sorts of wild things are going to happen if, if you deal with people's mental health, but obviously our health is always mental health as well. Yeah, there is definitely a stigma. And even from the patients themselves, uh, I think a good example is, or a handful of examples, um, especially being in an integrative clinic, like we are a primary care clinic, 
And some of the patients are just assigned to us because of insurance. And so they don't really know that we're naturopathic or integrative at all. They might just say, well, this is where my insurance kind of assigned me for primary mm -hmm. care. They don't know about naturopathic medicine necessarily, but some patients are um, hesitant to be on medications. And a lot of that has to do with stigma um, around the medication itself, around the need, like it's a weakness if you need um, a medication. Um, and just full disclosure, I'm, I'm an advocate of medication if that's what the patient is needing based on their risk, based on their accessibility, insurance covers a lot of medications. It doesn't pay for many of our wonderful naturopathic treatments. Um, but, I, but my number one goal is just to meet them where they are. And sometimes that's medications. Sometimes it's natural supportive treatments. Sometimes it's both. And it's almost always the recommendation of counseling or some other behavioral health supportive person that they can meet with and talk with more than just me. Um, but there is a stigma with medications and some of it is just the fact that they needed it and other, other pieces. Um, so that's kind of from the patient's perspective as, mm -hmm. or they might, they might say, uh, Oh, well, my partner, you know, doesn't want me to be on medications because they think that I should just be able to muscle through or my mm -hmm. friend or my family member doesn't think that, uh, I should need a medication. All I need is just to get up off the couch and go run outside and get some exercise. And, you know, coming from our profession where we do know all of these lifestyle factors that influence mood, we know in the backs of our heads, like, okay, are they getting adequate sleep? Are they eating a balanced diet? Are they, um, you know, do they even have access to food and shelter? Are they exercising? Are they doing all the things that are like the quintessential healthy thing to do? Right. And yet, if you have debilitating depression, you can't often do any of those things. You just need that push to be able to get out of bed and start your day, mm. uh, right? So it's like, we have to meet the patient where they're at, I feel like, and your question was, you know, how do people respond when I tell them that I focus on mental health as a big part of my practice? Um, it makes me think about, and I'm, I'm guilty of it too. Uh, it makes me think about, you know, like I know you're in New York right now, being on the New York subway, it's a colorful place to be. You never mm. know what you're going to see or who you're going to meet on the subway. That's and very some, true. Sometimes there are, um, you know, people that are struggling from mental illness. They may be on the subway. They may be on your way to the subway. And um, sometimes those people act in unpredictable ways. And the, the way that society typically responds is by ignoring it and pretending that it isn't there mm. because it's uncomfortable. Uh, but I think that there's a lot of... Um, there's, you know, it's a survival instinct. So, you know, me being a small female walking my dogs outside, I, I get nervous when there's somebody who I label as unpredictable walking around because I don't know what they might do if they'll approach me. And, and it's just, I think that level of, we don't exactly know there, there is a stigma associated with that. And, you know, I think that it's just, it, 
it comes down to, do we feel safe or not? Mm-hmm. Um, and that, and that's a, that's a spectrum too, because there will be patients that need mental health support that I will recognize as not being an appropriate fit for primary care at the level of care that they may need. Mm-hmm. And sometimes that comes down to safety of the patient, safety of the provider, um, and whether or not that patient is going to have access to care, uh, with, you know, the type of care or the frequency of needing that care and monitoring that comes in. So, Mm. you know, I, I think that everybody deserves access to care and part of the primary care's job is to, uh, find the resources for that patient. So maybe if I can't be the one to provide that, I can at least facilitate getting them hopefully to the place that can provide, you know, whether it's inpatient treatment or just a higher level of care, Mm -hmm. psychiatry, the challenge with that is that the wait lists, especially in this area for mental health support are so backlogged. Very, very, very part long. Of the, part of that's from the pandemic um, with just wait lists in the medical system. And part of it is just, there's so much need for patients um, from patients to, you know, need mental health support and there are not enough providers or you know, access through insurance and programs that can provide mm. something. I mean, I do think Portland has a lot of great resources um, for f- folks that need mental health support, but- um, It could certainly know. use a lot, a lot more help. I mean, if I'm, uh, for anyone who's not been in Portland, uh, some areas of town, it's, you see, you know, you see people uh, who, who, don't have a, who don't have a home, who, uh, seem to be in like the worst states of hell that like a human can be in. They're completely lost, like, you know, shouting, acting erratically. And, um, and, you know, as you said, it, it's, it's completely natural and well-founded to be, you know, like stay safe. Obviously it would be silly to be, you know, so afraid of hurting someone's feelings that you get uh, like attacked in the middle of the night or something. So we got to be careful, but then at the same time, um, also, uh, uh, connecting with the kind of humanity of that and the fact that there isn't like you said that kind of tendency to ignore it um i don't i don't exactly see what what else like most people can can do in a sense right uh because it's such a difficult problem uh to to help people with um, and the societal aspect of it is huge, right? When we're talking about the social uh, uh, stigmas, obviously uh, through most of the uh, 20th century uh, uh, with the like rapid progression of uh, psychiatry and neurology and things, uh, there was a common notion that still lingers around today that people who uh, suffer from any kind of mental health issue, whether it's, you know, occasional mild anxiety that everyone experiences to like the most severe, you know, schizophrenia, uh, psychosis episode, that those people are somehow, uh, one, that it's somehow like their fault that they're like that, uh, primarily, and that, uh, two, that they're kind of, you know, they're, they're not in the same society as we all are. They're kind of outsiders. And, uh, and if you look you know, in the early 1900s, in, in many uh, many countries in, in the world, they were actually seen as you know unfit for society, and you know were 
uh, worse, uh, especially in the uh, 1930s, uh, uh, Germany, uh, pre-World War II, where there was massive campaigns of uh, sterilization of people with mental illness, sterilization meaning preventing them from reproducing, uh, something like 300,000 or so in 1935. And then eventually it became more and more extreme till, you know, approaching 1940 in, uh, in uh, pre-World War II Germany. Uh, it, there was just uh, full-scale mass killings. Uh, the sh most shocking fact of that that uh, in my research is I found the most disturbing is that uh, not only uh, they were completely legal within the laws of that country during that time. And, uh, you know, uh, doctors, psychiatrists and things, they were required to be present for those things. And some of them were the ones spearheading these uh, projects that, that led to something like 400,000 killings of, of people ranging from seemingly not severe mental, uh, mental issues, uh, like mild uh, bipolar, uh, they called it manic depression back in the day, uh, even people with epilepsy, uh, people who are deaf, uh, people who had different sexual orientations, uh, and, you know, many terrible things happened there. We can we can also talk about concurrent things that happened in the United States during uh, during that time. Uh, it's it's pretty horrific. And what it kind of really pointed out to me is that you know the general societal views towards people that kind of dehumanize them for some aspect, whether it's like what they look like or the content of their mind, to dehumanize them uh, is the beginning of of genocide eventually, if that process continues to its end, because, uh, you know, it can be perfectly rationalized within that frame of thinking uh, that, uh, that, you know, terrible things can be done uh, under the guise of medicine by people, you know, who swore an oath to do no harm. That's something I want to talk about too, because this, this idea of uh, medical trauma is really a discussion of, uh, of how well the principle of do no harm is followed uh, on like a individual, a societal, on an organizational, institutional level. Um, what 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 do you think of of those kind of things? Like uh, I don't know how familiar you are with uh, some of the things that happened in you know the 1930s, 1940s in the United States, uh, uh, Germany, and things like that. Uh, they don't really speak about that uh, the aspect of what was done to people suffering from mental illness. Uh, there was a lot, a lot done uh, in, in the millions. Yeah, I mean, obviously that that type of history, um, I mean, the, the hope is that that type of um, kind of feels like experimentation to a degree or like yeah. it, it's it's like the extreme version of pretending the problem doesn't exist like oh let's just eliminate the person and then we're eliminating the problem um without trying to understand what is at like our medicine is always trying to get to the root cause of what is the root cause of this illness um that like you said it's not it's it's not the the patient's fault um and it 
it does, you know, make me think about my approach to somebody with, you know, struggling with what, what they might bring up as symptoms of depression or anxiety or like PTSD type symptoms is, you know, always hearing the story. So like you mentioned the story of the patient before and how the story is always important. The story is going to be different from one patient to another. Um, and that will, it's like, we're medical, we're detectives, right? We're trying to just get to the bottom of things. That's what I really appreciate about our medicine is hopefully we have the time to give to the patient, to hear the story and kind of uncover after several visits. Um, because it often does take a lot of time to get down to the bottom of something or, or at least feel like we're getting somewhere. And, you know, I think that the, the notion that we have control is probably an illusion or the notion that we have it all figured out and we've cracked the code is a lofty goal, but that should always be uh, our goal is to figure out why is, what is it of this person's story? Like, how could we intervene? How could we potentially try to um, overturn a stone um, and, and figure out what might've been not looked at? Cause you know, there's all these underlying uh, organic causes of. I would say they're almost, illness. they're almost always is right. There's right. this idea that it's either, you know, a body illness or mind illness, but I've never really seen a case where there wasn't some physiological aspects that once improved, improved mental health. Right. And I mean, even in, there's not always this quote unquote, big T or little T trauma. There's not always mm -hmm. that story for everybody. There is a lot of that big T or little T trauma. If we start to listen to the story and they say, well, you know, ever since this happened, all this, I have felt this way, or th these are physical symptoms that I have noticed since this thing happened and they can pin a date on it. Uh, and, you know, we label it as post-traumatic stress disorder or what have you. Um, mm -hmm. And the name uh, for that one, the name changes like every decade or so, right? Cause it was called <laughs> like, it was called shell shock. Uh, right, right, it, right. It was called uh, battle fatigue, I think before that and, right. and post-traumatic stress disorder. And you know, it, it was almost like, it was like a fact that, you know, the, the military wanted to just brush under the rug. They wanted to just put a name for it because they were seeing, you know, people in the most stressful situations, obviously war and things like that, who, uh, who really just, they completely broke psychologically. And there wasn't any really, they had no idea of what to do uh, with, with that because it was kind of, you know, like it was like the elephant in the room, you know, because here there was this idea that, you know, war is glorious and you're doing the right thing that a lot of soldiers went into the military for. And then you saw some of the like the strongest men psychologically completely, uh, you know, just break down and, and hardly be functional uh, after these repeated uh, tra uh, traumas, especially this long term stress response that never ends but that's kind of like ptsd where the, the stress response just can't wind down after some uh, amount of events or over time 
Yeah. And, and, you know, obviously it started out with it, that sort of label gained recognition or that cluster of symptoms gained recognition from the military. Um, and luckily since that point, that, um, diagnosis has expanded to include anybody who has suffered anything that their body has labeled or their brain has labeled as traumatic. And I think it's important that we recognize, um, you know, going to war is a big T trauma, but Mm -hmm. there are so many, uh, little T trauma, um, so many little T traumas that can result in the same right. response and, mm. and knowing that that response or the trigger can be so uh, more subtle than going mm. to war from our outs- an outsider's perspective. But yeah. from the person that that's happening to, their body and their mind is responding in the same way as if they are under attack. Yeah. And I think it's because the uh, the reason why, you know, PTSD and these things are, are so prevalent in, in people who serve military action is because what they're facing is, uh, you know, as I was mentioning before, existential human problems that don't have a ready solution, like the problem of death, the problem of like the senselessness of random occurrences, uh, the problem of you know, caring for someone deeply and losing them. I mean, in fact, I think this is an important, really important note to make uh, speaking about, you know, PTSD related to war. In most cases I I saw, it wasn't actually, uh, it wasn't that they got PTSD after, uh, you know, they were in really intense uh, conflict or the fear of death or something. A lot of time it's when, you know, their, their best friend like died in front of them and, uh, and some, you know, they came back home and they lost their whole group of like their closest friends. And there's like all the survival guilt about this. So there's, there's some fundamentally uh, like very human causes for, uh, for uh, PTSD. And what I would, uh, what I would theorize and just from working with patients and, and, and reading a quite a bit about it. I think PTSD, and of course, there's many other you know, theories and explanations. This might not be the complete picture. It seems to be something that happens when like a human, they come fate, like they come directly into contact with like the terrors of life, the terrors of like human mortality, uh, in, impermanence, uh, like senseless evil and just completely pointless violence that that can't be justified. Uh, and the whole worldview of the person is thrown upside down, right? If someone's really optimistic, believes in, you know, God or a higher force that guides them, when they see things like this, they get such a direct glimpse into some of the terrors that we try to hide away from that, you know, their whole belief system and their deep innermost convictions just completely unravel because they can't really understand how they can believe in the good nature of the universe and see such evil. It just, there's a problem with reconciliation. And I've read about that in, in research, that that was what was very helpful for, uh, 
for, for many people suffering from uh, PTSD specifically is uh, reconciling like deeply emotionally, you know, mentally and in the life issues that every cell in your body wants to kind of run away from because they are just completely they're, they're terrible. There's no sugar recording it, you know, the death of a loved one, those kind of things. Um, what, what do you, what do you think on that, uh, on the topic of what, you know, what PTSD is, what are the factors in it? How do you, how do you view it? How do you approach it when someone comes to you and they say they had, you know, a traumatic event? Yeah. Um, or events. What you were, what you were saying about, uh, you know, the mind not being able to reconcile kind of this duality of, you know, good, good versus evil, or to be able to, you know, have come that close to just completely primal fear, um, Mm -hmm. or grief or whatever it is that triggers that, um, kind of replay because it's the, it's the brain's memory of that traumatic event that is what is causing or in theory is what is causing this like cycle to repeat even though that thread is gone now it's a different situation if somebody would you know continues to be in danger that's not necessarily post-traumatic like that is traumatic over and over and over like repeated trauma Um, If somebody were to be in an unsafe environment for a long period of time, they're just being traumatized over and over again. Uh, But this idea of post-traumatic stress is the trauma is done. The, the, The physical or the mental trauma that happened one time, theoretically, the body and mind should have only responded to it then. And then something happens, enough time passes, whatever recalibration happens in the brain and the nervous system and the neurotransmitters and, you know, all the chemical processes, things will write themselves or hopefully would. But, and I don't know what that tipping point is of why post-traumatic stress um, continues on this loop where you are having specific uh, well, sometimes it's triggered by certain being in a certain room, hearing something, smelling something like something sense, usually it's sensory mm-hmm. will associations, trigger anything that associations. associates with that. And, and yeah, that just points to it really being like an adaptation. It's really an adaptation of it. It seems like it's this deep, you know, neurological rewiring that occurs, uh, after an event, which is really, you know, evolutionarily and biologically meant to be incredibly helpful. You know, when you experience terrible things happening, it's like right. your, your body is like, okay, we're in this kind of place. We, uh, you know, the limbic system, amygdala, they begin becoming hypersensitive to any imagery that might be threatening and things like that. And then uh, when this process gets extreme enough, even things that uh, don't, like rationally have any reason to be afraid of they become you know these deep fears like almost like these deep threats um 
It's very, yeah. it's very interesting. And I sort of, I, I mean, this is probably an oversimplification, but the way that I think about certain parts of that pathophysiology of that loop of it's like the tape being replayed over and over again, or it's like when acute inflammation turns into chronic inflammation, acute inflammation is good because it's, it's the body's immune response responding at that in that window of time following an injury or an infection or, you know, something that gets the immune system's attention. We should have a window of time where inflammation and the immune activity is heightened and that goes in and cleans things up. And then it's supposed to leave and resolve. Um, and I, the way I, th I think about PTSD is the oversimplified version is that it's like acute inflammation turning into chronic inflammation and that potentially there is even, um, and I haven't dug into this specifically for PTSD with inf like uh, measurable inflammatory marker activity in the blood or in the body, um, you know, being associated with, you know, when, whenever they have a symptom flare that mm -hmm. they, that they sort of label as either a panic attack or because the panic attacks are often very quick. Um, so it depends, but I, I do know of a potential association with the increased inflammatory markers and, mm -hmm. uh, mania. So there right. is a potential relationship there, which is really interesting. So it, it's it like there's there only so many with pretty much every uh, yeah. mental illness I've looked into. Yeah. Like, and there's always some physiological thing going on in the brain. Right. And, and then, of course, like the other limitation is we can only measure objectively measure so many things like, yes, our labs are we are able to detect certain abnormalities in labs. But that's only because mm -hmm. we've designed we, we know we think about, oh, yeah, let's see if this marker can be measured. I mean, there's so many things. We just have no idea what's happening. We can only wager a guess as far as what do we actually think is happening patho in the pathophysiology right. when we have this symptom or when we have like this mood change or this flashback or uh, this hallucination or whatever it is. Like we, I mean, neurologists are amazing because it's like they just study the minutia of the, the balance of these chemicals mm -hmm. and how is it affecting certain parts of the brain? And then of course, what did those certain parts of the brain even represent in our memory, our executive function, our fear center, our behavior, our personality, our speech, and then physically how we move through the world. Mm -hmm. Um, but I do kind of think about that loop of, you know, acute inflammation becoming chronic inflammation. If it's just an easier way to label it in my mind, that that would occur without the trauma continuing to be there. Similarly to somebody mm -hmm. who's had a traumatic brain injury and that acute phase should last. I want to say it's like six weeks to three months, or maybe it's just a month. Like it's really a shorter period of time that we would expect somebody has concussive sy symptoms for just a pretty short period of time. I think it's four weeks. It might be as short as four weeks and they should resolve by that point because there's no evidence on the imaging. That there's an injury, but mm -hmm. then there's post-concussive syndrome, which is thankfully getting more medical recognition, more uh, uh, as far as like the validity of that condition, mm -hmm. very is valid. that's being recognized the as long-term well, inflammatory yeah. neuroplastic right. in the bad yeah, direction. What, 
thing that and what happens when those symptoms after a concussion do not go away after four weeks because now the theory is there's no injury anymore right but the symptoms are still there Mm -hmm. um so you know the body keeps a memory like it, it keeps track of what has happened and sometimes like you said i mean it's designed to protect us as a survival uh, mechanism to say, well, we want to make sure we recognize when that danger might come up again, because the last time this danger happened, you were doing this and you were wearing that and the things smelled like this. And that's what the scenery looked like. And this was the person you were with. And like, then that deja vu, something just triggers Mm -hmm. it. And then the system is going haywire again. Mm. Um, but it is something about there's this loop that's going and then how do we redirect or how do we lay down mm-hmm. new pathways? And that's the big question is how do we get somebody to feel safe in their own body and mind again, if we are pretty sure that something organic in their body isn't necessarily, you know, putting them at that mm. risk of having it happen. And obviously we, in our medicine, we say, okay, well, make sure that their thyroid is balanced because that hormone being high or low can mm-hmm. can manifest in a lot of mm-hmm. um, mood instability and what have you. Uh, and make sure that they have enough, you know, that they're absorbing nutrients and they're not deficient, having a nutrient deficiency that could predispose. Mm-hmm. There's to so, this. Many, so many, so uh, many, so much physical reasons. There's so many uh, from like the union tradition, like subconscious reasons, like for neuroses and complexes and things. And I think they, that, that field has made incredible headway in, 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 in that area. Um, and everything you said uh, to kind of uh, pull it all together uh, as we were uh, discussing before, uh, that it's not all in your head kind of thing, that that, that is a kind of a cop-out, that uh, a lot of these things, these disease processes we have, you know, names for them, we might have tests, we might be able to say they fit criteria, but fundamentally, they're, they're not something that are well understood. And the general uh, research in that area seems to be the further they look into it, the further you can eventually find some physiological cause for anything going on. Um, Is there like a psychological cause that can't, that, that doesn't, get as influenced by the physiological, uh, that would be a question to, to ponder. Um, yeah, it's something you just said made me think about, uh, let's see if I can bring it back. It was like a, <laughs> it's like a fleeting, a fleeting thought. And I was like, mm-hmm. wait, can I hold on to you long enough? Uh, oh yeah. So what you were saying makes me think about something that I bring up to students when I'm on shift a lot, because I have medical students, um, on shift with me and they see the patient for the majority of the visit. And then we all consult together. And then, um, and there's so many like diagnoses that we, and it's, you know, easier for us to use the label just to kind of put things in a box and there's, there's good. And then there's bad to doing that, obviously. And I'll come back to that. But with the diagnoses, you know, you can use a symptom as a diagnosis And in fact, that's what I prefer to do for any condition that I, that I'm not, you know, that I don't have objective proof 
of uh, as far as workup from a specialist or thing, other things having been ruled out first. It's like when we learn about diagnostic criteria, we, we are you know, told that certain conditions, especially more complex conditions, often need a lot of conditions to be ruled out before you can even diagnose one. Fibromyalgia is a good example mm. of this. Um, psychosis is a good example because there are a lot of organic causes of psychosis. So the psychiatrist wants to make damn sure that that patient experiencing psychotic symptoms isn't drug or alcohol induced, isn't medication induced, isn't, you know, I mean, I don't know if the psychiatrist is really looking into nutrient deficiencies and starvation and like these fundamental things. Are those in place before we can say, okay, we are actually pretty sure that the psychosis was not caused by these things. And then, you know, we may label that as schizophrenic, what have you. But so all that is to say, I, I always, before I can say, I mean, I just feel like there's no absolutes. That's the thing. It's like this existential part of me says, well, dig deeper because everything we're talking about with patients is a symptom. It's often not a diagnosis. And I always want to disprove myself, what the students might be talking about, just to try to challenge them. Sometimes what the patients come in with, because patients can get attached to uh, their own diagnoses and their labels and think, okay, finally, I have this, in a sense, it's, it's validation for them which we can talk about too, because I have some other thoughts about that. But mm-hmm. I also don't want people to get so married to their diagnosis that they let go of Becomes the, their identity. And, exactly. and actually so it they're identifying over time. They're so. over-identifying, they're self-enforcing, and, they, and it can lead to um, kind of getting rid of the other potential causes or things that could worsen it, that those yeah. kind of get brushed aside because they attribute this symptom or this behavior to, oh, well, you know, I have this. Thing, Coming to so conclusions it must be this. Uh, way right, too right, early. Right, the early closure. So I think that there's both uh, value and potential harm to make giving that label. Um, but I always am thinking about like, okay, well, why is depression isn't a diagnosis. It's a symptom. Why is this person depressed? What is causing this depression? So we're really good at that as naturopaths is like, we keep digging more and more and more to see what is causing this. And that even if we think we have it figured out in one visit, you know, with, with mental health, it's such a moving target. Like when Mm -hmm. we give them a PHQ nine, which is the, you know, the sort of monitoring screener for depression it's so changeable from one day to the very next yeah, day yeah absolutely yeah absolutely so you have one bad day and you everybody yeah. would score low yeah. and then the next day because when you're in that mental state all of your experiences is, is colored by that state so if you're in like a kind of you know depressed or anxious mood or anything of the like if uh you know you're told to remember like what happened the day before your your mind will almost like reinterpret everything before as like an anxious or depressed mood so even if the day before was this like great jubilant day the memory of it might be that 
the small parts where it was negative because when you're in that state, it's like your mood, uh, it, it influences just the way you perceive reality and, and even your own memories and your own thoughts. So that's why, uh, you know, it's, it takes a lot of deep digging to get to that, uh, to those issues and resolving them because there is no easy solution. They're very complex and mysterious things. Uh, why one person, you know, who has a traumatic event, uh, copes, adapts, and, uh, sometimes can even become stronger and why another person, uh, the same in every way you can imagine, uh, you know, it, it breaks them and it takes a long time for them to kind of pick up the pieces. Uh, so there's, there's a lot of mystery with, with the mind. And I think anybody who tells you that they've got it all figured out uh, is, is trying to sell you something. <laughs> It's so true. I'm like, I, I feel like the more, it, I mean, obviously we've heard this before, the more, you know, the less, you know, or something. Yeah. To that the more, you like, know, the more, you know, you don't know. Yeah, exactly. And that's, that's I feel like it's good to be humble. It's good to constantly be questioning. Like I always kind of feel like I'm back at ground zero because, you know, every patient is so different. And I think that the danger is when we as providers get too, comfortable with certain like treatment protocols or mm -hmm. certain workup protocols. Like, yeah, for efficiency, that's great. And it's fine to start out with sort of that general outline of like, this is how I screen all my patients for this. This is how I approach all patients with it. But patients are so different. People are different. So we have to be able to pivot and apply and, and not just do the same thing over and over for mm -hmm. different people. Um, and you know, because we, it's kind of like when you drive a new car, all of a sudden you notice all the other cars on the road that are like your car, mm -hmm. but you never noticed those cars mm -hmm. before. The only reason you're noticing them now, and it seems like everybody's driving this car all of a sudden, it's only because you're noticing, you're seeing things through that lens. You become aware of it it's in your own experience. Because, so now you see it everywhere. Yeah, That's kind it's of not a because, classic psychological projection. Yeah. It's not because there are more cars like yours on the road all of a sudden overnight. And it's the same thing with conditions. Like you know, there's, I kind of joke about whenever, um, we see, or I notice that there are the same conditions that we see like mm -hmm. three times in a row, because everything happens in threes, like mm -hmm. who knows if that's real or not. It's just something we notice like, Oh, this week I saw three ear infections. Okay. Next week, it's going to be three, you know, knee injuries or something. It's like funny things like that kind of happen, but it doesn't mean that you should ignore all the other things that it could be when you're starting from scratch with figuring out what a patient's dealing with, mm. like just because you started to see a lot of patients with this symptom doesn't mean they all have this same diagnosis and that they will respond to the same treatment. Mm -hmm. um, but that it's hard because. Well, that's, um, a, that's a, such a common phenomena for medical students, right? Like we, we, we study through all the systems of the body and most, I don't know if, if this was your experience, but it certainly was to some degree mine. You, when you study each of the different systems of the body, you like, you know, you learn about them and you read about them so much that you start noticing things that you didn't before. And, you know, so when it's, you know, immunology class, you think you have an autoimmune disease when it's, 
you know, endocrinology, you swear that something's wrong with your thyroid and you have all the right symptoms and you just like, whatever you see is what you perceive in yourself. So that's both like uh, beneficial, but can be dangerous. I think we just need to understand that, you know, if you spend a lot of time reading about a certain thing, uh, you will see it more. If you understand that that's the process, then you can actually use that to guide your investigation, right? You can, uh, you know, but it's hard to be subjective with your own minds. That's why they say doctors shouldn't treat themselves because they can't really be uh, removed enough from their problems. Like the way a good friend would be, who is like, Hey man, like, it's obviously this, like, you don't see that. And it's just like, Oh, wow. Like that's really obvious. It's like, Oh, we have like a blind spot where we are. To the our reason, the reason I was laughing is because <laughs> It made me think about when I was a second year student and I was learning about gastroenterology mm. and we were learning that week in tutorial about gastroenteritis. And I, like <laughs> that very next day, I got a bout of gastroenteritis, but I think it was because I had drank like one of those juices, you know, like the pre-made like juices yeah, and yeah. whatever. And I just thought it was hilarious because I was like, my bottom was like, my body was yeah. manifesting. That's like a, it's like a synchronicity. Literally. It's a synchronicity. <laughs> and I think that that was a synchronicity more so than it was a psychosomatic yeah. response, but yeah, I'll that's never when it's really particularly know. Weird. That's I will never know weird. because it's not like, yeah, it's like it, it blew over in a day or two, but I just thought it was so funny because, uh, yeah, I mean, I obviously our imagination and our Empath empathy and all the reasons why we would feel something that you know we're learning about is it, I think it's it does play into mm -hmm. our experience I mean they're not separate like body and mind are not separate we know that so no, they're they're not even not even kind of you know and it's it's interesting that there's kind of you know two camps even within mental health and they've pretty much existed for as long as you can look back into history. There's like the, the camp of mental health that believes that mental health has organic causes. Uh, in like the early 1900s, there was this really strong belief that within the conventional uh, field of uh, medicine that all, all mental illness, any issue, it would be found in a lesion in the brain. Like there was something some malfunction, there were some organic things, something physical that you could point out and you could take out. Um, and then, you know, during that same time, the early 1900s, there was all the different schools of thought of uh, psychotherapy, uh, psychoanalysis, analytical psychology with Freud and Jung and Adler and those people who during the early 1900s uh, uh, in, in Europe, they were sharing their their findings their research their understandings to uh to a kind of like scientific community that thought that that was all bs that there was no such thing this was before there was even a term called psychology anyone who practiced psychology was uh you know a medical doctor md and psychiatry hadn't even really been coined yet so the people that believed that it was uh, purely organic causes were kind of the predominant norm and the people who believed that there was the psyche that you could work with, that speaking, doing art therapies, things like that could be beneficial, uh, was a really, there was a lot of uh, competition between those ideas. And uh, part of the reason why I bring that up is 
to illustrate a, a, a very strong danger in going too far in either direction, to, to believe that everything is purely organic or to believe that everything is purely psychological. Uh, uh, in, uh, in the United States, in, it was pretty much uh, the 1930s to about the 1950s. Uh, during that time period, I believe it was 1939 or 1949, uh, a Nobel Prize was awarded for a revolutionary new psychiatric procedure. And that procedure, uh, at the time to the culture was thought of as, you know, the, the future of psychiatry and, uh, you know, innovative and the answer to all these things that we had no answers before. And that procedure was something that today we kind of recoil from and that's uh, lobotomies, uh, which are something that even in the United States in the, uh, between the 1930s and 1950s, something like uh, at least reported 30,000 psychiatric patients uh, underwent uh, lobotomies. And uh, not even to even dive on the medical ethics of, of, of these things where many people who were in psychiatric hospitals were not there voluntarily and they did not consent to you know, uh, any kind of procedure. So there's a kind of medical ethics issue of uh, you know, anyone who knew what was gonna be done to them. I don't think any person uh, would, would want that to be done. But anyway, it was like this innovative uh, therapy. And there was uh, obviously everyone's seen movies about uh, electroconvulsive therapies and all these uh, chemical electroconvulsive therapies. The 1930s and 1950s was this heyday of uh, organic psychiatry, in it, particularly in the West, whereas uh, in America, whereas in Europe, it was like Jung and Freud. And they took, they were kind of, uh, I would say, more holistic. Whereas the rapid advancement of technology, you know, preceding World War II, after the rapid advances in scientists, obviously the mass, completely inhumane experimentations that happened during World War II, uh, all that kind of inspired these people to really go all in on that camp of organic lesion, where they thought that, you know, any kind of issue with, with your mind, psychosis, bipolar, it was something in your brain and so they took that part of the brain out, right? It's very common, modern, con conventional at its worst ideas. Like you got a problem with your gallbladder? Just take it out, no problem. You got a problem with a person with mental health? No problem, just take them out. Like this very, um, very cold, inhumane, uh, really just like barbaric way of, of viewing these very subtle things. Well, it's also um, overly simplistic too, because yeah. what you're saying is like, okay, some things we can see an organic cause, other, other things we can't. And I agree with you, we should be neutral in our uh, approach to, and our curiosity to figuring out or getting to the bottom of, of these conditions and symptoms. Um, and what you're describing is this you know, extremist view one way or another, like both extremes are dangerous. Mm -hmm. And there's two, uh, I don't know if schools of thought is the right way to, to phrase it, but there are two sort of theories um, that illustrate this extreme approach to a bunch of symptoms. So mm -hmm. uh, one is called Hickam's dictum, 
And that point of view says that patients can have as many diseases as they, as they want, meaning that there is a disease for every single symptom that they tell you about. And obviously you can see the issue with that. If somebody comes in and they tell you about 10, uh, 10 um, symptoms and you approach their diagnosis and their treatment by saying, okay, well, that means you have 10 diseases. Mm-hmm. For each one of your symptoms, you have a different diagnosis, a different disease. You can obviously see the issue with that mm-hmm. uh, because that's uh, like so, so rare that that is actually the case and that none of those symptoms are related. In fact, it's, it could be arguable that well, pretty so the much op- at some level of exploration for any disease, you can find some common cause theoretically. And so, so yeah, so the opposite of that, which is equally as dangerous is called Occam's razor, which Mm -hmm. is the idea that every single symptom that somebody has Mm -hmm. is attributed to one condition. Yeah. Yeah. And obviously that's super limiting too. Like that means you're just chalking up everything that they're telling you about to one condition and then you have blinders on and then you've completely it's like what we were saying earlier about like the the dangers of labeling is now you're attributing all of your symptoms to one condition and every other condition under the sun there's no place for it Mm. because it's just chalked up to this one condition Mm. so now you're no longer searching for well what could be explaining this new symptom is are we completely missing something else that could be underlying and dangerous because Mm -hmm. we've attributed all of these things to that one thing so that can't be more than just this one thing right so then it it kind of makes you discount like signs that there might be some kind of concurrent pattern uh, totally and like and people are complex i mean most people don't present like in a textbook that we learn about we learn these textbook presentations of these conditions And so that is for the sake of our learning, Mm -hmm. you know, we have to sort of simplify certain things just so that we can digest the material, but also remembering that most things don't show up like a textbook and you're lucky when they do, but they usually don't. So even pancreatitis, for example, surprisingly, I've known three people personally who've had pancreatitis within the last few years, and none of them had vomiting, even though vomiting is like one of the cardinal symptoms that we learn about being associated with pancreatitis. And none of them had, none of them were alcoholics. None of them had binge drank the night before that either, which is another So if you rested too much on that theoretical thing, you might've discounted it. You would miss it. So Mm -hmm. it's like, we always have to, you know, we use the information we're given as an outline. That's a starting point, but we don't, we can never just hang our hat completely on this textbook presentation or just, you know, Occam's razor versus Hickam's dictum. We can't, Mm -hmm. we can't jump to those extremes. We just it's like we have to just train ourselves to be constantly mm-hmm. questioning, constantly digging deeper, especially when things aren't quite adding up um, mm-hmm. or you're not coming to the obvious answer, um, you know, when you first do the workup for them or you first talk to them, you have to just keep digging and trying to figure it out. An important uh, point here on this kind of uh, like just the theories behind diagnosis of conditions, particularly when it applies to mental health, like, you know, in the DSM, they're 
always coming up with new names for, for things like that. What I always ask is, does it change the treatment? That's the part that disturbs me, uh, is that a lot of, you know, obviously it's, it depends on the practitioner and how they go about it. Uh, I would say the wiser they are, the more that they would differentiate treatments based on these condition names. Uh, but many times it's, it, it seems like 90% of the time within maybe a conventional mental health model is in coming up with like a, a specific, you know, DSM uh, name for the condition with all like the sub specifiers and all this. And what, it, it begs the question of, okay, now that we've named it, now that we've named these group of symptoms, does that actually change how that person will, will, will treat the different versions of it? Will it even change how uh, physicians will treat anxiety and depression? Because when I, when I see particularly in the kind of more uh, primary care con conventional model, uh, there's some statistic that something like 80 or 90% of all antidepressants were prescribed by, uh, by uh, physicians who didn't specialize in mental health. They were kind of just, you know, they were, you know, you went into the doctor's office with a stomach ache and you mentioned also that you might be feeling a little bit out of it, the, the PHQ-9 and, the, you know, the, just the, the worst kind of McDonald's medicine version of it where they're just kind of handing them out. Um, and, you know, a lot of those same medications are used, whether it's like generalized anxiety, whether it's, you know, depressive disorder of this type, whether it's a depressive disorder because of like bereavement, whether it's, uh, you know, all these different things. In the end, I, I ask, what does it change the treatment? And I, I would say for, for my experience, and I'd be interested to hear what you think, that if the diagnosis doesn't change how I treat, then the diagnosis is not important other than for the, the fact of letting the patient know that this is like the name for what you're going through. And, you know, uh, giving that, you know, taking the power away from the disease and saying like, we've named it. So we're like, at least we're at step one. Like we might not know how to treat it yet, but we know that what you have you know, happens to other people. So that's like a nice comforting thought. Hey, I'm not alone. Like this is just, you know, generalized anxiety disorder, millions of Americans experience it. So there's a kind of beneficial effect from that. Um, so, so yeah, how does it, how does it change the treatment, you know, between all the specific variations and things like that. And the thing that I love about the more, you know, depth psychologies is that the diagnosis always changes the treatment because you're working with like psychological uh, factors, uh, symbolism, uh, ideas and things. So if someone's, you know, afraid of ghosts because they had a, a, you know, a strange experience in their, you know, earlier life, or they're afraid of ghosts because they watched a movie, the treatment is completely different, even though it's both a fear of ghosts, because the, I guess the idea behind those things has to be worked with as it is. It, it doesn't fit into a textbook. So the, the diagnosis is really like a page long expression of all the different factors going on in the mind. And our, our, our work in a lot of ways is, is to pull the pattern out and 
and, and find what is the way to resolve this process. The mind is always trying to heal itself and rebalance. So um, we have that on our side, at least. It's not like we have to do necessarily the heavy lifting. And like you said earlier on, which I think is so true and any, and, you know, uh, physician who uh, focused on a psychology that I really look up to and admire their work and read a lot of, they all said the same thing, that the patient story in mental health is the primary thing. That is the most important thing. That is uh, not just from a, like a compassion standpoint of, of hearing their story, but it's the most important thing for, for uh, basically helping them with what's going on, you know? And, uh, and we, we learn a lot from that too, right? Because every time a patient comes in with something like really hard to deal with, uh, you have to deal with it too a little bit because it, it brings to mind that this is, you know, this kind of reminds me of things I've seen my friends experience or, uh, you know, so we, we learn a lot. It's a, it's a kind of, it's a, uh, you know, two-way street, let's say, when it comes to mental health, I think. And if, if there isn't, then um, I don't, I don't, I question how effective uh, anything like that could, could be. Yeah, there's a lot I could say in response to what you were uh, talking about with does our treatment change? Um, based on the diagnosis. Yeah, based on the diagnosis. And so I think that sort of how I approach that question, it's it, the answer is multifactorial. There's always so many things that, that can influence, uh, you know, even getting access to a diagnosis. So I think you know, in mental health and specifically, like I mentioned earlier with the pandemic and all of these wait lists and not having access to enough mm. providers, um, there are, you know, a handful of patients who, who I, and I kind of go back and forth on this, to be honest, um, that I really want to have like a, a psych evaluation where they spend several hours and they have you perform all these different skills and tests and behaviors and they're, um, you're under supervision for this whole thing. And then the provider, um, writes up a report and at the end of it, and I've re read a few of these reports. Um, the interesting thing about that is even with somebody who's gone through all of this training to diagnose and, uh, and, and go through these questionnaires and these, um, observable traits, even with all of their training, they still, when they, when they write up their diagnoses, they still use terms like, well, this, these features are suggestive mm -hmm. of this. And, you know, with, with, um, with the DSM, there are so many interesting, like, you know, umbrella terms and then sub diagnoses mm -hmm. under those that you could get every flavor you could dream of for the number of diagnoses that there are. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's a diagnosis that's called literally st uh, stress and trauma related disorder. Uh, there's one that's, you know, the symptom and then unspecified, like there's so much we don't know. Mm -hmm. And even after a several hour evaluation with the specialist, they are still not wanting to say 100% this is true, right? Because a lot of that is subjective. Mm -hmm. Like we can't, they're not, they're not objectively measuring other than having them fill out these questionnaires that are mm -hmm. supposed to be objective, but we know those aren't objective either. Those were just mm -hmm. created 
by somebody that thought mm. that the cardinal symptoms of this should be laid out in this questionnaire mm. if they answer this or this. It's like we can't we can't hang our hat 100% on that mm. on a questionnaire diagnosing somebody either because mm -hmm. that is still subjective. Um, it which may is a be, little um, it may be, I don't know if you've heard this, this theory of the DSM, and I think there might be some historical accuracy to, to earlier uh, versions, but that it, the, the purpose of the DSM was not really to diagnose conditions in the same way that, you know, a textbook of uh, pathology is for a physician, but that it was more uh, a tool for research because of the variance of mental health. Uh, issues with all their uh, nuances and intricacies that the DSM was uh, really an attempt to start from the beginning with psychology and psychiatry and say like, all right, let's figure out all the different ways that this can happen, give them names. And then when we have those names, we can compare patients, then we could do research, then we could figure out what's going on, or if those names are even real things, or if those 20 names are actually could just be grouped into this one general same cause, same effects type of thing. So that, that's how I, I view that at least. Uh, it's obviously different for, for other medical diagnosis systems. Well, yeah, and I think that that's an important distinction to make that it's good for the provider to be reminded of that, even though it's pretty obvious when you start to look at how those conditions are even described. There's so the much knowledge in the them. nuance and There's like, so much you can learn from it. And it's all, and it's usually based on like symptom and sometimes ob objective, like observable, observable behaviors, but it, patients don't always think of it in that term. They want to know why do they feel this way? Why are they you know, it's like they want that concreteness, just mm -hmm. like they would want a diagnosis of hypertension, which you can see numbers on a machine. Like it's it's just so different. And I think we do need to give, I mean, I always try to sort of give patients this educated uh, educational piece whenever we're talking about treatment, we always come back to that. Well, you know, we're treating you based on you as a person, based on the symptoms you're telling us about. And then we are also, you know, thinking about family history because family history of mental illness does inform what the mm -hmm. patient in front of us might a lot. be. Yeah. So those names are amazingly yeah. useful. Uh, Even their response to uh, their family members response to medications, good or bad could tell us, give us some information as to how uh, that patient might be responding to that same medication. Cause there's a genetic mm -hmm. piece that goes into that. Um, and so, but it is a, an, it is it's an educational amazing and yeah. so useful and educational. Um, yeah. And, but the uh, caveat, which we keep stressing is to, to understand them in the right way so that they become a tool for you to actually uh, greater understand yourself or the people you're uh, trying to help rather than limiting you and, and taking away from your practice where, uh, you know, a predominance of the time is spent on trying to figure out what the, the name of the thing is and the patient's kind of like right in front of you with no help. Really the, the fact that to do something helpful to help them resolve the process is more important than uh, in some sense, even understanding what it is that's going on. Because if you can at least help them, then you've done your job. If you can understand it too, 
well, then you could probably help a lot more people because you'll yeah. be able to recognize and, them. And with like getting a diagnosis, you know, it's it's so hard to even access those specialists for patients, especially patients that I see that are on Medicaid and they're going to have to just wait. They, I mean, I've had patients on a wait list for almost two years now for that. Mm. So what have we, what have I been doing? I mean, I don't like to use the terms throwing spaghetti at the wall because I'm a little <laughs> bit more tactful than that, I assure you. But, you know, for some patients that come in and they say, well, here are the 15 psych meds that I've tried. Here are the types of therapies that I've tried. Here are all the, I've tried all the herbs, right? There's so many mm-hmm. patients that say, I've tried every herb. And I'm like, oh, really? You've tried impossible (laughs) thousands of herbs that like, I don't even know the names Mm -hmm. of half of. Mm -hmm. Um, So obviously getting more information about Mm -hmm. what do they think they mean when they've tried it all, because even psych meds, like there are pages and pages and pages and pages of different medications of different classes. And there's a lot that come out all the time. And so it's like, yes, I want to make, uh, I want to make use of their time. I don't like wasting people's time. I don't want to put them through unnecessary trial after trial after trial, even though I think we have to admit that medicine is more trial and error than we think. Uh, But just like what you're saying with, um, does the diagnosis really matter? A lot of times it doesn't. And in certain situations, if I'm not sure of, or I'm still maybe considering a certain diagnosis and I want to start a treatment, I'll just make sure that I uh, monitor for those potential you know, either worsening of side effects uh, or, or symptoms mm-hmm. as a side effect of the treatment, because some treatments will bring out uh, like an activation of a condition mm-hmm. that might have been underlying that might not be presenting yet. And, mm-hmm. you know, uh, bipolar depression is often mistreated as unipolar depression. So that's a good example of right. a lot of people with bipolar disorder have depression as their more dominant symptom than right because longer duration so like several months it ends months up looking to you know to people that are from the outside looking in it looks like this person's just got unipolar depression without yeah. without any sort of ma- manic features and so they end up potentially getting mistreated although there's even some evidence that SSRIs and SNRIs can be used mm-hmm. to treat bipolar disorder as well so that's an mm-hmm. interesting thing it's like it's kind of just using different puzzle pieces and making, Mm. making it um, fit the individual's needs. Mm. Um, And then, you know, back to, do we need, do we need uh, to know the diagnosis? I'll even ask myself the same question when I want to order imaging, when I, when thinking about ordering Mm. labs, like, do we really even need to know this? Is it, is it putting the patient at danger to not have Mm. this thing assessed? um, before we start treating, um, you know, like, do we really need this blood test? Um, especially when it comes to like functional tests, you know, in our, Mm -hmm. in our, um, in our, what's the word I'm looking for? Profession. Profession. Thank you. Yes. The simple words. Um, I'm like, yeah, I know some medical words. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know simple English. In words. our medical art, <laughs> in our field of medicine. in our medicalese. Uh, yes, there's a lot of like functional tests and functional medicine is this yeah. term that I can't actually stand because it represents, I think, um, at its at its extreme. Even though it might be coming from this place of wanting to figure out the root cause, I think it does end up potentially fixating too much on um, 
expensive panels of tests that we don't know necessarily know enough about right. to say how does how it change valid. the treatment comes in how, there how does it does change, it change the, treatment? the treatment what the result is going to be are if we not, even like are is, the, is the test even like validated like or do we even know that we're going to get the same consistent results and that that's going to translate to this pathology seeing these elevated levels so there's all of the like a gi panel is a good example like a lot of those fancy expensive gi panels you know, unless we're testing for celiac disease or H. pylori or inflammatory bowel disease, like things we want to know about if they're present, it honestly just tells you, oh, this enzyme is low. Well, I probably could have figured that out based on their symptoms without the test. Oh, yeah. this one, this one thing is elevated. And what does that mean? That there's inflammation. Well, no shit, there's inflammation. Yeah. <laughs> They're having I, like IBS. You know what I mean? So it's like, it's not telling me anything I didn't already know, but A then it just the costs them like however many hundreds of dollars or it costs their insurance however many hundreds of dollars. So that is a particular mm -hmm. thorn in my side when I'm like, why are you sending either making your patient or their insurance pay for this $500 test that's functional that you can tell based on their symptoms. If you listen to their story, if you are a good history mm. taker, you should be able to figure out a lot based on history. And I think if anything, like something that was a good thing that came out of the pandemic was our ability to go from in-person visits to virtual visits mm -hmm. and give virtual medicine without the need for a physical exam. And we got really good at history taking mm -hmm. and figuring out just those times when you would want the physical exam. And I'm not saying physical exam isn't important. Like I think not doing a physical exam, you know, at least one or two times a year could be a disservice to people. Mm -hmm. I mean, it absolutely could be, but I also want to recognize how, if you're, if you're good at getting that story from somebody you should be able to figure out, mm -hmm. at least have an idea within the ballpark of what they're dealing with. And then if you need a follow-up physical exam, you have them come in. If you need a follow-up test, a lab test or an image, you get that ordered, mm -hmm. but you should have a pretty good sense of what's going on by just hearing them out and knowing mm -hmm. which questions to ask. Um, and obviously that's the art. That's the art of the science is just hearing the story, mm -hmm. but can you bring out the elements of the story that are the most useful? Mm. And every practitioner is going to have their own, they're going to have their own strengths. Some are going to be, you know, well suited to, uh, you know, uh, the stories of patients and pulling out symptoms from that. I think uh, us uh, uh, naturopathic doctors in general are, are pretty good at that. That's why the field even interested us because we like to have more extensive conversations, looking for deeper roots, looking at the influence of all the factors in the body, all the organs. Um, and others are just going to be wizards with their hands in terms of, um, you know, a physical diagnosis. Like for example, my, my dad is a, is a surgeon and obviously in surgery, you know, scans are the way to go. A lot of times they like in a hospital, it's like, don't even bother with the physical exam. We're going to do the, the scan anyway. Uh, but what, what my dad's told me is that he's had, you know, not like he's had more than one instance where, you know, the, the scan was normal, but he felt like their abdomen, he was just like, something's not right. And, you know, if asked, he couldn't even tell you exactly what it's like some gut or intuition thing. And, you know, he would, you'd be like, okay, we need to, we need to bring them into surgery like immediately. Um, and when, 
you know, when he would say that, the hospital would basically uh, say, well, why, why would you, uh, why would you say that? Like, there's nothing going on. There's nothing on the scan. And, you know, he would bring them into the operating room and he would find all sorts of, uh, you know, medical emergencies that if he hadn't caught immediately, it could have been disastrous. Um, so, yeah, there's, there's a lot of intuition related uh, to medicine. And I think that that's the art of it, you know, and uh, the mind and the psyche are incredibly subtle. So uh, the study of the mind, the psyche and psychology is really more of an art than a science. And uh, there's, of course, both aspects, the art and the science part, but the art and the intuition is very important. Um, so, yeah, I wanted to ask you, what, what is your view on what, uh, you know, doctors, the medical system can change to help with medical trauma? Because we were talking earlier about medical trauma. So what are some, you know, things you've, experience learned that you think might help prevent, you know, uh, healers doing harm to the people that they're trying to help? Yes, it's, it's the, it's the $64 question, as my grandmother would say. <laughs> uh, what's that value with uh, inflation? <laughs> Is I it know, the $187 question now? <laughs> it must be because she was born in like 1920. So, <laughs> Crazy. um, so yeah, when people ask me, what kinds of patients do you see in your practice? And obviously I've talked about the mental health part of things, but the, the pattern that I'm noticing for every single patient, even those that aren't um, outright struggling with, um, you know, mental health um, symptoms or disorders is that they, for one reason or another, uh, they tell a story of a medical, um, you know, trauma or being invalidated by other doctors in the past, or, um, they came you know, in with all these symptoms and no explanation and they did all the tests. And in the end, whether or not it was said, you know, it's all in your head. That was kind of the implication. Well, yeah. Or the hands or up and they say, well, we don't know what it is. Or they, it's just or psychosomatic. They, yeah. Or they weren't even given the workup, you know, or they weren't discounted. Given the from time. The yeah. They weren't given the amount of time to even address the complaint. Mm -hmm. um, or they were, they had their complaints chalked up to something else. And so they were mismanaged. They were misdiagnosed. Um, and I'm seeing it a lot from patients that have uh, like dysautonomia. So mm -hmm. dysautonomia is a really interesting um, sort of cluster of potentially with a lot of comorbidities um, conditions that are, I think now gaining a little bit more uh, recognition and um, a little bit more understanding, but they're relatively new conditions as far as the labels that people have finally found for them or the mm -hmm. unifying, uh, you know, one label that unifies a lot of symptoms. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, in dysautonomias, there can be neurologic symptoms that present, there can be cardiac symptoms that present, there can certainly be 
uh, you know, mood changes there, you know, dizziness and like palpitations and chest pain and, and fit, syncope sometimes. So very scary symptoms that have a lot of like system crossover that, um, from a cardiologist or a neurologist, like the patients that I see that have these types of symptoms are gaslit without knowing what other term to use where they're told that you're fine. Like your workup is normal. Therefore, right. It's like, we rely sometimes too much on the workup because if the imaging and the labs are normal and this, you know, provocative test didn't Mm -hmm. elicit anything, then you must not be having the symptoms. It's like, we're not actually listening to what the patient's experience is. So we're completely discounting the fact that that patient has a story and they're trying right. desperately to make their story heard. And instead they're being told your workup is normal. Therefore you are not ill. And it's not really even fully doing their job, you know, in, in some deeper sense, right? Because from the patient's point of view, they go, they have some issues. They go to a, a, a doctor, healer, practitioner, because they want, they want help with what's going on. They want to either resolve it. They want to know what it is so they can begin resolving it. They want these kind of things. And to them, like, what does the diagnosis really matter? They want help with their concern. That's so the, whereas on the other side, it could be this viewpoint of the, you know, doctor, healer, practitioner, that their job is just to keep people like from dying basically. And that they have no further, uh, you know, the, anything outside of that sphere is not important to them. So when they see, you know, everything's fine, it's like, yeah, you know, everything's fine, but it, it, it's not, it's not fine. Uh, and that's the place where if, if you have that happen to you, you probably find, you know, someone who actually will work with uh, what's going on, even if they don't have a name for it. You know, a lot of times going back to the diagnosis thing, a lot of time I, uh, uh, I rely like within my own mind on more traditional names of, of diseases and conditions and more pattern-based things that you might find in like traditional herbalism um, that has like a kind of in, intuitive aspect of it where the diagnosis is really just an explanation of what are the causes of the current state you're in, right? So you're like, uh, you know, this hypothetical person is you know, does not sleeping, they feel really stressed, they're always like on edge, and they, they just, they just can't get their, you know, mind to slow down or whatever. And, uh, and you look back, and you see that they were through like, some of the most, you know, terribly stressful events over the last year with no stop, like, barely making it by, like, almost, you know, uh, not making it through all those experiences. And, uh, you know, you come upon, a lot of different ideas and every practitioner is going to have a different idea. Some might say that that's something like uh, chronic exhaustion. I don't know if, do you know, like Hans Selye and the uh, uh, general adaptation syndrome and chronic stress and, and that research of how there's uh, different stages of stress. Like in the beginning, uh, there's a certain kind of energy, like excitement. And eventually after long, long, prolonged, unresolved uh, stresses on the body, physiological, psychological, environmental, uh, it's just a complete exhaustion where the, you know, cortisol is not able to keep you, you know, going anymore. Your epinephrine hardly has an effect on you, adrenaline and things like that. So you can call it, you know, like uh, kidney young d- deficiency or something like that. If you're in Chinese medicine, if you're in the herbal tradition, you might say, uh, 
you know, it's a general stress condition related to, uh, uh, you know, the stress response and the, uh, the adrenals, adrenal fatigue and, and those kind of things. These are not like actual literal diagnosis. They're more like ballpark patterns for like, I've noticed this. And then even more so when, you know, I, I gave that patient some adaptogenic herbs, which specifically that's what they, they work on supporting that stress response process, helping relieve that chronic uh, stress pattern. Uh, and they worked, you know, that's, that's kind of, you can use diagnosis as a kind of tool for your treatment where it, it, you just know it as a tool, you know, you, you can tell your, your patient that, uh, this is what I think, uh, is going on. And this is why I think this is going on. And, uh, you know, this condition might be called something like this, you know, that's a name for these symptoms. Uh, and, and these are what the underlying things are, and, and this is what I'm going to do about it. And, and this is how we're going to know I was, I was, I was right about it. You know, how are we going to know if the treatment's even working? Um, you know, all those, all those really important things. So that the art aspect of medicine, I, I think cannot be emphasized enough, um, especially in our, our fields of more natural health, where we should, we shouldn't see the art aspect of medicine as some kind of, uh, insult to it that, oh, that's just the art of medicine. No, the art of medicine is the whole of medicine. You know, it's the combination of, of the research, the knowledge application, being able to perceive it correctly, being able to get your patient on board. I mean, that's super important too. Like, what if you, uh, you know, hundred percent what's wrong with the patient, exactly how to fix it, exactly how to make them better, but they just don't trust you. They just don't believe you. They just don't, have the motivation to actually follow through with like a rapid lifestyle change. So all that is art. And if, you know, any of those legs of that stool are gone, then, you know, the whole chair falls down and that chair is the patient's health. Yeah. And what you're describing, um, is confirm, you know, using the treatment to confirm the diagnosis in a sense, which, you know, is something that we didn't talk about earlier, which I think is really important because, uh, especially if the treatment, and this is also part of the patient education piece, but especially if the treatment is, you know, not um, dangerous and, you know, if we're really trying to like hone in on, okay, well, I only want to use this treatment if we confirm the diagnosis, like a mm -hmm. patient I was talking to the other day, you know, they, they said, oh, well, I'm, I'm concerned about having parasites and can we just, can you just send a prescription to my pharmacy? And I said, well, you know, in this instance, even though the symptoms that you're describing to me do sound like potentially a parasitic infection that's causing these symptoms and what have you, it's better to uh, get the test in this instance because right. the test shows you what types of bugs are we even dealing with? And then we have specific treatments designed for the specific bugs. So in that instance, it's like, yeah, it's helpful to get that yeah. lab. If we can catch the parasites. In yeah. The those stool, ones, great. those ones are pretty cut and dry. Like if there's a bacterial right. infection or, yep. or, or that kind of thing, there really is a way to know like right. pretty much and I, for certain and in that what instance, like I don't want to just throw yeah. antibiotics or antiparasitics at that person, knowing that they do have side effects yeah. Um, some of them are transient. Some of them can cause like elevated liver enzymes and things that I would rather not do when we can get a simple stool test. So if it's like, if the test is easy enough to perform or obtain, 
it's not wildly expensive and, and it changes the treatment. It changes the treatment in this yeah. case. Whereas with conditions that have so much crossover, like all these nuances of the mental health conditions, the that chronic, complex, the yeah. ones that no one, everyone. I mean, if you try, I swear, if you had patients who were diagnosed with one with ADHD, one with OCD, one with generalized anxiety, one with mania, I would sort of wager. Uh, that no one would know the difference if they were just watching them throughout their life, mm-hmm. if they were just hearing the symptoms that were being described to them. So many of those could be, uh, they have crossover, you know, symptoms and presentations. And the nice thing is some of those conditions can be approached in the same way. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's so many different treatments to offer anyway. Mm-hmm. And that's like, what's so great about our medicine is we learned the conventional piece, but we also learned so mm-hmm. much beyond just that. That's but, the um, fundamental theory of, uh, in our profession, uh, naturopathy is, uh, that, that insight that the same causes can cause different, you know, uh, conditions in people. So if you right. take, you know, let's say three people to use, to use that number, um, and they have, you know, three different issues. One has like, let's say severe insomnia. The other has really bad GI issues and, you know, uh, cycles with that. And the third has like these hormonal fluctuations that, uh, you know, come in like hot flashes or who, who knows what. Um, and a good naturopath might be able to find that just, it's just so happens that those, those three patients primarily what is causing their symptoms is just what's in their diet. Maybe they all live in the same area. They live, they eat a certain kind of diet. Maybe there's additives in it. Maybe they're having reactions. It's the type of food, like all these lifestyle factors and on and on and on and on. Right. And you could come to this point where you prescribe the same diet to those three people. And if you were on, like, if you were, uh, if you were right about that cause, these three conditions that don't seem to have anything to do with each other might resolve themselves. So that's just to say that there can be common root causes. And uh, uh, what I would say about that, that I think uh, is that everybody has like a certain predisposition to expressing disease states in a certain way, right? So it's like some people uh, get a cold or the flu and they're the kind that, you know, uh, always gets like muscle aches or something. And there's other people who get that same cold and flu and they're always the one to get stuffed nose and others who always get a sore throat associated with others who get like a phlegmatic cough and they all have the same disease, but the way their body expresses that disease state is individual to their own like weaknesses of, of their organ systems or um, uh, maybe uh, disbalances or, or like, hereditary lifestyle reasons for why certain systems aren't working as well. Isn't that sort of a little bit about like the homeopathic miasms? You know, you have all these sort of miasms that can present so differently. And so giving, having, you know, people within uh, from those different miasms get the same condition. They're going to manifest it differently. One Mm -hmm. person might mount a crazy high fever and then they're better the next day. The other person might be sort of sickly for like weeks and weeks and Mm -hmm. weeks. So they might have these sort of like subclinical symptoms and, Mm -hmm. um, yeah, yeah. Yeah, exactly. That there's like this 
disease process and we don't really exactly know what it is but it has all these like characteristics and although the same process it expresses itself differently in people and you just get deeper and deeper and, and deeper uh well I, I can't help but think that that's why you know people are wondering like oh how is it that this condition can manifest in so many different ways so many right. different presentations like we thought that this condition was like cough and fever and shortness of breath but with these other people it's causing gi distress and with this other person they yeah. only have a headache with this other there's, person they just felt tired there's a there's a million physiological examples of that too right like there's um people have different reactions to like hypoglycemia and stuff, right? Some people uh, get more on the hangry side. Some people get like more on the anxious side. Some people have panic attacks from it. Some people, it doesn't even bother them at all. And it's like, it's the same thing. It's the same physiological thing, but you know, they're, they're, their response, their their body, their constitution responds differently. And I think that's, uh, a really genius aspect of a lot of the traditional medicines like Ayurveda and Chinese medicine, um, and even like humoral uh, theory, which predated, uh, you know, modern medicine, uh, like Greek medicine, they all had this idea that there was both, you know, imbalances of certain, you know, patterns, or they might call them energies or substances. Um, but that these imbalances that led to disease based on like the general constitution of a person, like based on their inherent characteristics would not only show different signs of that same imbalance, but might have even different treatments. Like in Ayurveda, there's different diets for, you know, somebody who's a Vata constitution versus a Pitta, if they're having anxiety, it's different treatments, even though it's the exact same symptoms because their, their natural tendency is towards something different, you know? Yeah. Um, and then while you're sort of illustrating all of that, I, something else came to mind, which I feel like is sort of another way that I, uh, validate the patient or, um, give them a little bit more of like onus for their own health, because I feel like in a lot of medical visits, you know, because of efficiency, I mean, I do truly think that, you know, doctors get a bad reputation for, not taking the patient seriously and not listening Mm. and just rushing out of the room. And we have to recognize that it's not the doctor for, in a lot of instances, it's not the doctor who is, you know, doesn't care about the patient. It's the medical system that's broken Mm. and it's been broken. And like, you know, being on the doctor's side of things, if you have to see a patient uh, every 15 minutes, how would you be successful? I mean, that's literally setting you up for failure. You would have to be like a like a genius or a master to be like so. I mean, it's like if the time. system is broken to begin with. Yeah. So it, it, I I do feel bad whenever patients say, "Well, I don't want to see my doctor that's I'm, that I'm assigned to that takes my insurance because they don't pay attention and blah 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 blah." And so I think, well, I don't want to bash that doctor. I don't want to throw that doctor under the bus and and put the blame on them. Let's, let's blame the system. And sure, there are, there are doctors that, you know, I think maybe are just burned out. Maybe they got into medicine for, uh, a different reason than to, Mm -hmm. you know, connect with people, you know, I mean, it takes Mm -hmm. all kinds. So, and there's, and they're all, there's a place for every type. And, you know, sometimes you, you need to just go into the doctor's office, get a quick checkup, get an antibiotic for your infection and just be on your way. 
some physicians are like they're great in a crisis they might not be lovey-dovey like bedside manner but they they're there to save your life they're there to take care of it it's like they're very to the point they're very good at what they do need them to understand that everyone has their own kind of like sphere and to know which sphere of help you you need yeah. help in whether so, you So, I mean, you know, knowing that a lot of patients do tell me that story of, well, I don't want to see the doctor that I've been seeing for this because of this reason. Regardless of the reason, I say, okay, that's fine. I'll, you know, help them of course if I can without hopefully having them spend a bunch of money. I like mm-hmm. people to use their money wisely. Mm-hmm. Um, but also a big part of my practice and specifically with prescribing um, or, you know, prescribing of medications of herbs of uh, low dose herbs, all of it is that I, I have a lot of patients that are hypersensitive or they're are highly sensitive. So mm-hmm. they, and, and this, I think does play a role in how they go through life, how they, what are their, what is their daily life? Like if they're that sensitive to stimuli, to, um, you know, senses, to, um, p- sensing people's energy, to being so sensitive to changes within their own bodies. Mm-hmm. Um, oftentimes those li- things that, you know, somebody else that might not be as sensitive or as tuned in might not even notice. Um, now, all of a sudden you have somebody whose experience is like seeing everything and feeling everything. Like there's a magnifying glass and it's turned up to like, you know, 10 mm. X. And of course they're going to notice every little thing that feels like a symptom. They're going to notice every little thing that feels like a side effect. So the way that I've approached those patients, which, you know, I don't feel like there's as much written about this, but is doing just like we would do low dose herbs, like, mm-hmm. uh, like an UNDA formulation. It's mm-hmm. not quite a homeopathic. It's not mm-hmm. a full dose tincture. Mm-hmm. It's somewhere in between is kind of how I conceptualize mm-hmm. it. And it's acting within that hormesis curve a little bit differently. Um, I often dose, especially psych meds, um, starting really low, because if I feel like that patient would benefit from a medication or they don't have the, you know, either the time or the means to put toward herbal, um, Mm. then we start with a medication and uh, start at like half the starting dose and Mm. do the increase of the the, um, medication over a longer period of time, because I find that people that are, well, first off, they're discounted for saying that, uh, oh, I think I had a side effect from this dose. And, you know, nine times out of 10, they were told, no, that's not possible. It's not possible that you had this side effect from this Mm -hmm. dose, but it's of course possible. And I think that just giving the patient that validation, like, I believe you, I believe that you're the only one that truly knows what your experience is. Mm-hmm. Um, there's no way I could put myself in their body and actually know what they're experiencing mm-hmm. from this medication or what something else they thought it was. Um, and I find that patients are, they tolerate the medications a lot better and they're more likely to be compliant and then get benefit from them. Even if we only end up doing it for a few months and then they, they mm-hmm. say, okay, like I was able to get through that initial hump. I was able to put other lifestyle, like foundational things circumstantial things change, getting everything in order to where they didn't need the medication. That's the ideal is that they Mm -hmm. don't need it forever. And that's Mm -hmm. part of the conversation too. It's not just, Oh, I think you need this. No questions asked, Mm -hmm. get out. I got to see someone else. Like a really important part of it. Yeah. Especially looking into the research of 
antidepressants in specific, they were never really meant to be used for right. more than like six exactly. months, a year. But some people are on yeah. them for like 20 or 30 years. Oh, yeah. And same uh, with benzodiazepines, like de- benzodiazepines were not meant to be used long-term. They're highly addictive, they're habit-forming. And then after a period of time, they're not even theoretically doing They anything. don't have any like- But they're preventing they the next- from They're preventing the next- Yeah, they're preventing the next withdrawal. Yeah. So it's, but it's like, okay, so we should always be, after every treatment, we should be reevaluating. And that's, I think a lot of like, you know, just for the sake of efficiency, people are just uh, in these busy practices and they're just trying to have the patient turnover. They're just trying to get them out the door with their treatment. They're trying to close the chart. They're trying to do the insurance billing. They're trying to Mm. see the next patient and then just go, go, go. And there's not a lot of, unless the patient is scheduling a follow-up themselves, Mm. oftentimes they're like, just kind of, oh, I guess this is forever because nobody told me how to use it. So mm. I think that, you know, docere, doctor is teacher, it it goes such a long way. And in fact, sometimes the visits are only about docere and they're really not about any specific treatment, but it's like, let me hear your story. Let's talk about some things. Sometimes we talk about potential options or approaches, and then mm. they just might go home with some written information to read up on and then come back Mm -hmm. for, you know, some people just need to, because they have had some sort of traumatic Mm -hmm. experience in, in the medical visit, they need to be given time and space, um, to kind of come to Mm -hmm. that next step of, okay, what kind of, what kind of treatment am I willing to even dive into now? Because Mm -hmm. some trust was lost along the way between that patient and some physician and you might be the next physician that they question, are you going to harm me? Because not taking somebody seriously is a form of harm. Just because you didn't harm someone during a surgical procedure or, you know, some of the other form of negligence doesn't mean you weren't doing harm by, you know, not taking them mm-hmm. seriously in the visit, not giving them a proper education around the treatment that they chose or the risks of not treating. I mean, this is like all of the, it seems so simple, but it, it's, it's so, I feel like it's not done because the fact that simple an idea, re- but the application yeah. is, uh, it's like brings fact, a lot of complexity to it. Well, there was the patient I saw who is a, who has hypertension and diabetes and mm-hmm. They were never given an alternative to lisinopril or insulin. They were just prescribed these things. Not much follow-up was done. Zero education about the conditions and the different treatment options were given. And when I started talking about these symptoms and they're telling me about all these side effects they're having from lisinopril, I said, well, were you ever given other options? They said, no, I've never been given another option besides insulin. I've never been been given another option besides this blood pressure medication. And so that was a big like uh, revelation mm-hmm. to me, which is just talking for five, 10 minutes about, do you understand why you're taking these? Have you been given other options? Mm-hmm. Are you interested in other options? Mm-hmm. That's all we have to ask. It really goes such a long way. And I feel like that's a bigger part of my practice than any other specific treatment or condition. It's just tell me your story. Tell me what you know. What can I do to fill in the gaps of what has been neglected or done wrong by somebody else. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it is in a sense, it's sort of a therapy session, but we are healers, you know? We do sometimes take the role of therapists because 
they might be able to access us before somebody else. The naturopathic profession has many principles uh, of how we should treat our patients. Uh, but it starts with first, do no harm, being the most important uh, of them all. So if one doesn't know how to help, sometimes doing nothing is the way. And I think looking back at some of the terrible mistakes of medicine, if they had simply done nothing, it would have been better than what they did. So we need to be very careful of considering any treatment better than none uh, when one doesn't understand it. So thank you so much, Dr. Angela Hardin. Always love uh, uh, talking with you. Yeah, it's so great to catch up and talk about all these things that we're both passionate about. We need to do a part four. <laughs> Let's just keep it going. <laughs> all right, everyone. Thank you for listening to the Herbal Hour podcast.